the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. Thank you for joining me again. My name is Amin Tait. Today, I will continue tackling the highly relevant topic of jihad. But I do strongly suggest that you listen to the previous episode prior to listening to this one. In the last episode, I discussed the traditional doctrine of jihad as developed by Muslim jurists, and I raised some of the tensions surrounding that doctrine and the potency of some aggressive texts in the Qur'an, in Hadith reports, and in the historical reports enshrined in the Sira or biography of Muhammad. I also considered three kinds of verses in the Qur'an. The first kind seems to strongly privilege peaceful relations and religious pluralism at least within the frames of the time. The second kind of verses speaks of conflict, but only in defensive terms. A third type of verses appear to embrace an offensive form of warfare. A similar discussion could be had about Hadith reports. In all cases, we saw how Muslim jurists developed their doctrine of jihad while working within a context much different from the original setting of the oral Qur'anic discourse. They were working within a context of empire, a context of territorial expansion and the pursuit of resources. To deal with the seeming contradictions or tensions within the scriptural sources, Muslim scholars used the concept of nasr or abrogation, meaning that the texts that are reported to have been chronologically the latest represent the final aim of the divine revelation. These verses happen to be the most aggressive of verses, particularly the so-called sword verses in Arabic, ayat as-saif. For more details, please go back to the previous episode of this podcast. Now, I want to also say something about having to discuss this subject today. My goal for this podcast, at least in terms of its presentation of various themes surrounding Islam as a religious tradition, is to generally follow the historical development of different parts of that tradition. So far, I have generally dealt with the early centuries of Islam. But the events we are witnessing today around the world, and that have to do with jihad and conflict, as well as the confusion that dominates many of our popular discourses, both in the so-called Muslim world and in the European and American settings, has pushed me to tackle the subject of jihad in order to allow those who have been listening to this modest podcast to have a little better understanding of the religious component of what's occurring around them. Although I must insist that of course there is no such thing as religion 
without a larger context that shapes that religion even as that religion shapes the context. I would like to start by considering what modern historians have called the jihad movements around the 17th and 18th centuries. These are Sunni politico-religious movements that carried the banner of jihad to cleanse their own communities of practices that these movements considered to be un-Islamic and to establish polities or political domains ruled by these movements' understanding of God's law to establish what some of them called caliphates. Let's look at each one of these two aspects. For these movements, their communities had strayed away from the true path, true Islam. Here we have to note that the contexts in which these movements evolved was one that has been dominated by various forms of religious syncretism. Syncretism simply means the mixing of ideas and practices from different religious traditions. This is very common in the development of all religions. In the period we're talking about here, these puritanical movements sought to get rid of what they perceived as practices that were alien to quote-unquote true Islam, that is, the Islam of the earliest Muslim community, the Islam of the As-Salaf As-Salih, the pious ancestors, a term from which derives the currently familiar term Salafi. This true Islam can be found according to these movements in the Qur'an and particularly in the Hadith. In many ways, these groups were the inheritors of the legacy of the early Ahl al-Hadith that we discussed in the past. It is not surprising that many of the ideologues of these movements, but not all, were affiliated with the Hanbali school of fiqh, itself the closest school to Ahl al-Hadith, although it must be noted that some important independent thinkers among pre-modern Muslim jurists were followers of the Hanbali school. So these movements not only condemned what they viewed as heretical innovations, in Arabic bid'a, singular bid'a, among the lay populations, but also severely attacked the religious Sunni establishment, the legal scholars whom they saw as having made compromises with un-Islamic political regimes and with un-Islamic popular religious practices. At some level, they had a point. The Sunni legal tradition is a tradition that attempted to keep a middle ground and to establish a compromise that maintained a status quo and a stable society. Muslim jurists were generally politically quietist, preferring political regimes that were rather oppressive to chaos or fitna in Arabic. Similarly, at the religious level, the Sunni tradition incorporated various theological, mystical, and popular religious views by moderating them. We will go back to this when we talk about Islam in what is called, by many modern historians, 
the Middle Islamic period. What the jihad movements missed was the sophistication of the arguments and of the theoretical discussions that Sunni jurists were engaged in and developed in their attempt to create useful compromises. And what these puritanical groups also missed is that there is no such thing as a pure, authentic religious perspective. Even their own perspective is the outcome of a particular reading of an inherited religious legacy. Now, I'm not saying that Sunni scholars who were at odds with the jihad movements were necessarily willing to see their role as simply further constructors of a humanly constructed religious legacy, but they, at least, with the intellectual tools available to them, were willing to generally enter into a discussion with the realities of their societies. This, however, is also what makes the perspective of puritanical groups appealing for people seeking a presumed authenticity within settings and at times in which social humiliation or political oppression or economic difficulties reached peak points. Now, let's say a word about the notion of caliphate. By the time the jihad movements of the 17th and 18th century came to the scene, the caliphate, that is, the political entity under the rule of a caliph, a political successor of the prophet as head of the community, had already long disappeared from the scene. In 1258 AD, the Mongols sacked Baghdad and massacred the last Abbasid caliph, who by then was no more than a symbol and sometimes a punching bag in the hands of military regimes that took turns dominating the central lands of the Muslim domains. It's true that the Ottoman sultans would later attempt to carry the banner of the caliphate, but they never gathered the general support of the Muslim masses, especially that by the 1500s, Islam had entered new areas of the world like Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Many of the jihad movements sought to present themselves as the champions of the re-establishment of the caliphate, although the caliphate they sought to recapture was not the form that it took under the Abbasids or even the Umayyads, but rather of the early, quote-unquote, widely guided caliphate of the early Muslim community. We had previously seen in this podcast that in reality, that particular period was characterized by endless conflict and was at times extremely bloody. In all cases, the jihad movements sought to violently impose their vision of what an Islamic polity ought to be. Massacres were perpetrated against those unwilling to submit to the swords of the carriers of the banner 
of quote-unquote true Islam. These jihad movements appeared in different parts of the world in which Islam was dominant, including Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and the Arabian Peninsula. It is in this latter, the Arabian Peninsula, that the most famous of these movements today came to life, namely the Wahhabi movement, named after its leader, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. I will discuss this movement in more detail in a future episode. Here, it is enough to highlight this genealogy of jihad movements so that we can better understand modern jihadist movements that we will discuss in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Peace. Thank you.